You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Dr. Sasha Lucioni, AI researcher and climate lead at Hugging Face, an open source hub for machine learning and natural language processing. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. My TED Talk and my work is really about figuring out how right now AI is, you know, using resources like energy and emitting greenhouse gases, how it's using our data without our consent. So really focusing on the here and now impacts. And I feel that if we develop systems that are more respectful, more ethical, more sustainable, that we can help. The way I got into this field was really working on the environmentally beneficial applications of AI. And I, I do believe that's a really impactful way of using AI techniques because there's so much data about the climate, there's so much satellite data, there's sensor data, there's really a lot of, and I mean, AI is really powered by data. So I think that there's a lot of promise there, but I think that the way to go about this is really to work with domain experts. I mean, so a couple of years ago, three years ago now, we wrote this paper called Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning, and it's essentially 100 pages. And we were almost 20 authors that were trying to go through all the different ways in which machine learning, AI can help fight climate change. And since then, it's really become almost a field of study and on its own, which is really great. But something that we emphasized a lot in our paper is the importance of working with domain experts. So instead of, you know, thinking that, oh, I'm going to solve climate change, I'm going to, you know, figure out all these problems that people have been working on for decades, to start by learning about climate science, ecology, whatever it is you're working on, and trying to figure out how AI can fit in because AI is only ever going to be a part of the puzzle. It's never going to solve the problem on its own, but it can be a tool for solving the problem. The thing is that, for example, the executive order is still a relatively high level. So it does need a lot of operationalization by different parts of the government. So like the National Standards Institute, they, they need to actually take this order and, and make it into actions and make it into concrete things that they'll do. And so I think that's where things are currently at, especially with the EU AI Act or the executive order, like we have this signal that's top down, but now people have to figure out how do we actually legislate and enforce and measure and evaluate. So there's a lot of kind of day-to-day problems that haven't been solved because we don't really have standards for AI. We don't really have legal precedent. We don't have a lot of things that have to be figured out first. So I think that we're really in this kind of intermediate phase where people are, are scrambling to try to figure out how to put this into action. I think that governance is still an ongoing process. I was actually reading the Chinese AI Act yesterday, but there's a lot to unpack there. And I think that the approaches that are being taken by different countries are very different. But also we are starting to see a lot of geopolitical battles, right? I saw at some point it was like there was an order not to sell GPUs to to certain countries because GPUs are kind of used for AI. And so I think that we're starting to see a lot of political tension in this area but there's, it's just all entangled. There's the technological aspect, there's the geopolitical aspect, there's the governance aspect, there's the legal aspect, right? But all the thing is with AI is that it, it kind of transcends borders. I think it's kind of important to think about the fact that originally neural networks were inspired by neurons, really by our brains. But the way like fundamentally that brains work, that human or animal brains work is really different than AI models currently. And brains are really quite efficient. Like, for example, we won't be using all of our neurons all the time. They'll be specialized, like if we're recognizing a face or if we're speaking or if we're drawing or if we're watching a movie or reading a book, it's different parts of our brain. And, you know, there are different zones and it's relatively well understood. AI models are not like that. I mean, we call them neural networks and they do have connections that can be seen as similar to neurons. But they usually use all of them all the time. So, for example, when you're training a large language model, 
you're passing the information through every single connection in the neural network. And then finally, once it's trained, then certain connections will be more reinforced than others. So there is a certain structure that emerges, but it's really not as, as specialized, I guess, as the human brain. And I think that's kind of the core of the issue, because whereas we can kind of use a portion of our brain, depending on the activity, neural networks don't have that built in efficiency. And so they're not efficient by, by design, let's say. And so people are trying to do different techniques, different approaches that aim to make them more efficient, more like the human brain. But I think that fundamentally, we should kind of ditch this metaphor. And I mean, maybe it did work for a while, but now it definitely doesn't work. And we should focus on the actual architecture of neural networks, the actual structure, and, and trying to make that more efficient instead of trying to make a parallel with the human brain. You know, when people say, oh, AI is going to help everyone or, or change humanity or, or all these claims, they don't realize to what extent, you know, even people don't have access to the internet in some places or, or cell phones or the fact that the data used by AI models is not representative of many parts of the world and it's mostly in English and it's mostly, you know, for example, the data generated on the internet is mostly by educated white male users of the internet who will post on forums or make websites. But, you know, there's whole generations that are not represented in this data, whole regions. And so I think that all these claims of the universality of AI or how it's going to help everyone are quite techno-optimistic. So it's actually really frustrating because we don't even know how, how big ChatGPT is as a model. We don't know where it's running. We don't know how much energy it's using. There's really... There's a couple of estimates out there, but they're not based on actual data that was provided by OpenAI. A recent study I did is that, for example, we compared a task that was done with a generative AI model and a non-generative AI model. And we found that like for something like web search, essentially it's called information retrieval or something like that, switching between a more, I guess, old school AI model to a generative model will come with like a 20 to 30 times more energy usage for the same task because instead of finding existing information, for example, you're generating new information. I feel that the big revolution around ChatGPT wasn't technological as such. I mean, yes, it was probably an interesting engineering effort, innovation, but actually where they did do a lot of work or had a lot of work done was a technique called RLHF or reinforcement learning from human feedback. And essentially it's a way of crowdsourcing AI model training to well, crowdsource workers, right? So essentially for something like eight or nine months before ChatGPT came out, they took a, a model that was trained on text data and then they got people to interact with it and to ask questions. And, and during this process, people would give feedback. So, oh, like I asked this question, like what's a chocolate chip cookie recipe? And then ChatGPT version zero would give a chocolate chip cookie recipe and then the person would actually fix it saying, oh no, well, three eggs is too many and no, you need like half a cup of butter or whatever. And then feed that back into the model and then the model will get better. And so this was done for thousands of hours by thousands of people. And then ChatGPT became what it was and, and very good. And so I feel like this invisible human labor is not recognized anywhere. And so as it's usually the case, you know, most of the people who were doing this work were, were not in the global north were kind of Kenya and, and Indonesia and things like that. And you, know, you don't really hear about them. You don't hear about their effort isn't really recognized. And they were paid a very low amount of, of money for this great job of, of making this model amazing. And so I think that's what worries me is not such as, as like labor will get replaced, but we're going to have this whole new economy of, of gig workers working precarious jobs and getting underpaid to make these models better. And so really artificial intelligence is not artificial. It's human intelligence that was 
memorized by the model that was kind of hoovered up, absorbed by these AI models. And then now it's getting regurgitated back at us. And we're like, wow, ChatGPT is so smart. But how many thousands of human hours were needed in order to make ChatGPT so smart? The whole emotion recognition and facial recognition is really a slippery slope, but people don't express emotions in a standard way. Some people are more expressive. For some people, you know, they'll smile less or more. And I think that it's really kind of like modern day phrenology that we think that we can use AI to recognize facial expressions or emotions. And all these different software, especially that popped up during the pandemic, I feel, for kind of long distance monitoring of students, especially during exams, it has a lot of weaknesses, it has a lot of shortcomings. You know, it, just because someone, I don't know, looks up at the ceiling doesn't mean they're like cheating and things like that. And I think that we kind of tend to get very excited about AI and applications and we don't really do proper testing to figure out you know, I saw articles about if if people live in a household that has more noise or younger siblings or parents walking around, then they would get flagged as cheaters by these Proctor AI tools. But of course, that's, you know, that wasn't the case. And, and same thing, for example, when it comes to detecting AI generated content, the current tools that exist um, and that are used by teachers in order to check whether their students were using ChatGPT to do their homework are very biased and they tend to penalize, for example, non-native speakers of languages who will make mistakes and then the system will say, oh, this is AI generated. And so I think that there's a lot of flaws that we really need to be conscious of when we're deploying these tools and we shouldn't get kind of just too excited about using AI without, without understanding the shortcomings of the tools. I definitely think that in cities where there is data, AI can be used. I know that, for example, Montreal, the city where I live, we have a data portal and for years, they've been gathering data about, for example, heat waves and tree planting and sewage and all sorts of stuff. And definitely there's things to be done. AI can be used and things can be developed. But once again, it has to be done in a way that is respectful and like to make sure that, for example, in this case, it's the city that's gathering the data. So, I mean, it, it's not, for example, personal data. It's really kind of high level sensors and things like that. But I know of a case in Toronto, for example, where I grew up, where they tried to have a, a smart boardwalk kind of neighborhood and then they outsourced this to a tech company and then they set up a bunch of cameras and then people got really upset because, for example, every time that, I mean, hypothetically, when you would enter this smart boardwalk, you would get filmed and the facial recognition would be automatic, et cetera, et cetera. And so finally, the project never happened because there was so much backlash in the smart city <laughs> setup that they had and the role of consent and the role of, of individuals and all of this. So so I think that there's really a tension in getting insights versus respecting personal freedoms and privacy. So definitely there's no kind of one size fits all solution. I would love it if there was a more democratic approach to AI, that there was less concentration of power, that it was more open. So essentially that the way that we develop AI was more transparent. That would be really great. But the way I see it is not going in this direction. It's actually going in the reverse direction. We're seeing less transparency and less sharing, actually. So AI models are, are now such a hot commodity that people are, are being much more territorial with them, which is a really sad trend to see. I think it's really important to say, once again, skeptical of AI, but also learn about it and see it not as some magical thing, but more as a technology that works, but also doesn't work, a technology that comes with costs and benefits. So I think it's really important to stay aware of this change that is happening and not just take it as a given, essentially, because young people are 
you know, defining like they're using AI almost all the time and, and it's almost integrated. It's, it's, it's part of their lives nowadays. And maybe they don't stop and think about, you know, what is this data that I'm sending to TikTok or Snapchat? What is happening? This filter, you know, does it work as well as for me as for a friend of mine that's either female or has darker skin or, you know, is wearing glasses, like things like that. I think it's really important. And it's something that I try to do with my own kids. That kind of critical thinking is going to be more and more important. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.